0: Well, good morning again everybody. Great time of worship. Uh, Let's give our thanks to the stage players this morning for doing such a great job. Amen. Feels like Christmas in here this morning, doesn't it? In the beauty of the decor, in the power of the songs that we've sung this morning, it's feeling like Christmas more than ever. And hope you're in the spirit already uh, today. Welcome once again to those of you that are with us online. Delighted to have you, all of us, wherever we may be, are turning in our Bibles this morning. The book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Find the Gospel of Matthew. If you're familiar with the New Testament, hang a sharp left. And we're in Malachi at the end of chapter two. And we'll be working our way into the first five verses of Malachi chapter three this morning. Of all of the Old Testament prophetic books, Malachi is one of my favorite, maybe even my most favorite. It's relatively simple. Uh, to understand, Rel- relatively simple to understand its structure. It's very well logically organized and it covers a host of topics, as you well know. It covers the subjects of God's love, it covers the supernatural sovereign election of God's people unto himself as holy sanctified vessels for an intended use, it covers the importance of worship and God's people having a sense of sobriety and propriety and holiness with respect to how we approach God and how we worship the Lord. In Malachi, there's a statement about the importance of the sanctity of marriage and uh, a warning uh, against approaching marriage too casually or too flippantly of understanding as we learned last week that marriage really is an act of worship. It's a part of a covenant relationship that we have not only with one another, but also with a holy God. The purpose of marriage is to glorify God and to honor God with our homes and, and with our families. As we shall see, Malachi will have a word or two to say about generosity and about giving And what probably is the most familiar passage of all in the prophecy of Malachi. Malachi also has some words to say About justice and about the concept of God's judgment. And it's to those concepts that we turn our attention today as we look at Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Let's take a quick scan of our text today and then we'll back up and draw some important conclusions as we address the question asked in this text Where is the God of justice. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Father, this morning we are so delighted once again to be able to come before you in this spirit of worship. The people of God coming together is always a highlight of the week and we pray as we Are reminded of how grateful we are for the eternal Word of God and such a great gift that it is to each of us. We're reminded today of our responsibility to know it, to learn it, to do it, to live it, so that there is no doubt that we are an unusual people among all the peoples of the earth, that we've been chosen and set apart by God for an intended purpose. So help us, Father, to know your word that we might live holy and in ways that bring honor and glory to you. And we ask your guidance now in this message for the glory of God in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, as I'm sure that you could have uh, told when um, we were reading this passage of Scripture, God's people are once again a little bit frustrated with God. you all ever get frustrated with God? Y'all have a question, God? Uh, I think if we're all honest, we would all say that there have been times that we question how God operates, how God works, and the kinds of things that God does. These people are doing that all through the book of Malachi. They don't sense here, as we work our way into chapter 3, they don't sense that God's being very fair if there's one thing that I found that people tend to question more about God, it has something to do with this sense of fairness. That God is not always fair in terms of how he deals with people. We are comparative animals, aren't we? We like to compare our lot with the lot of others and compare how we think we live with how we think they live. And if they tend to be doing better than we're doing materially or financially. And it's at that point we begin to question the justice of God. That's the title of today's message. It's the principal question posed by the people through the prophet. Where is the God of justice? Malachi addresses their question, and given it's a question that so many still pose today, I'd like to address it for a few minutes here this morning. We're going to try to tackle it by looking at the subject. From three different angles. First of all, I want us to notice with respect to even asking that question of God, that God's people ought to be very careful about presuming on the justice of God. God's people should avoid the presumption of challenging the integrity of God. Now, there's no question that we live in a world that's crying out for justice. Probably more than uh, in our lifetimes, people have cried out for justice more in this year than in any year that many of us can remember. I mean, from George Floyd at the beginning of the year to the ravages of COVID 19 to cries of election tampering, people of all ilks, all shapes and colors and sizes and stripes, people of both political parties are crying out for justice. Where is the God of justice? And surely there's nothing new about those cries because since the dawn of time in a world that's marked by evil and unfairness, where those who do good seem to suffer and those who do wrong seem to prosper, people want to know, where is the Lord in all of this mess? Where is the God of justice? And there's no doubt the problem of evil and suffering and injustice, that may well be the most often cited impediment to people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if you're a secular humanist and you observe the world and and you're like most people, you've become jaded and cynical with the things that you've observed. It's hard to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ unless and until you can get them over the big hump of what about evil and What about poverty and what about injustice? People want to know, where is the God of justice? It's a frequent theme in the Bible. There's nothing new about that. There's nothing 21st century exclusive about that at all. I mean, we're reading a passage of scripture that's 2,400 years old, folk. And they were crying out to the God of justice, wondering where all the justice was. You see it it even addressed, probably most famously of all, in what is most likely the oldest book in the whole Bible, which is the book of Job. Anybody remember Job? Was Job not crying the very same thing out? Where is the God of justice? I'm a righteous man. And certainly if he didn't realize that, his so-called friends were sure enough letting him know, isn't that right? With friends like that, who needs enemies, right? And they were all asking together, Where is the God of justice? And God finally has all of it he can tolerate, and he comes to Job, right? And he says, Who are you to talk back to me? Who are you to try to play God? Listen, that kind of stuff is addressed all over the Bible. It's in Job, it's in the Psalms, it's in Ecclesiastes. It's all over the prophetic works. The psalmist, for example, confessed that this was something that he literally stumbled all over in his spiritual life. Look at Psalm 73, beginning in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. Can you imagine a godly man saying such a thing? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw what? The prosperity, money, money. It's always money that's driving questioning of God. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And that's just one of the most cynical statements that you'll find from a biblical writer anywhere in the Scriptures. The same was true with Jeremiah, who asked the question much more succinctly, Jeremiah 12, 1, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? There it is, right there. Why do all who are treacherous thrive? That's what people at Malachi's day wanted to know. And it's what we want to know as well. Back in Malachi's day, all that carping and all that complaining about their observations had become, the Bible says, tiresome to God, wearisome. Look again at verse 17 of chapter 2. You have what? wearied the Lord with your words. Now, we know God is a God who doesn't get tired. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. But this is a metaphorical statement to describe that God was just tired of hearing about it. They, they wanted to be passenger seat drivers, didn't they? Amen. Tell God what to do. Tell God how he needed to be God. And it was tiresome to God. They didn't understand it. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So what the people were actually doing there is accusing God of ungodly behavior. Can you imagine such a thing? Because he wasn't judging sin quickly enough and he wasn't judging sin harshly enough. Just look at how the wicked prosper. Apparently it doesn't matter to you at all what we believe or how we believe or how other people believe. Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter how you live because the worse you act, the more you seem to get blessed straight from heaven. But I'm just saying this morning, y'all with me, say amen. That's just incredible presumption in the presence of a holy God. Same question comes to us as it did to Job. Who are you to tell God what to do and how to do it? Passenger seat drivers. I ought to know because I'm married to one. Amen. She's not here this morning. I won't say that in the second sermon today. But we all know what that's like. I've been driving for 40 years. I don't need anybody to tell me how to drive. Can you tell? It's caused a problem in our marriage. (laughs) That kind of stuff is wearisome to us, isn't it? And it's wearisome to God because the problem was they were focusing on the faults and the blessings of others and overlooking how God had blessed them. That's the problem with comparison. Comparison. Comparison of your life to others, particularly when you think that they're wicked or that they're evil or that they don't honor God, problem with that is it causes you to overlook just how sinful you are. You think that you've done everything right. And it causes you to ignore not only your own sin and how desperate you are for repentance and forgiveness and the grace and mercy of God, but it causes you also to ignore your own blessings causes us to forget that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that all of us are guilty before a holy God, that all of us deserve judgment, and that none of us deserve the mercy of God. This is why we need to be careful about demanding justice as we think it ought to be given because the truth is, here's the thing, I've said it a thousand times, you don't want to beg God for perfect justice because if God were perfectly just with you, it wouldn't go well with you. This is why the Bible says that God's people ought to focus on mercy more than judgment. That's in the book of James. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment without mercy will be shown to the one who shows no mercy. And so God says, Made your own mercy. Learn to rejoice with those who rejoice, even if they're unbelievers. Even if they seem to be profiting in spite of their sin. Here's the thing. You and I profit in spite of our sin as well. God is better than any, uh, to any of us than we deserve. And we ought to thank God for his mercy. So when you get frustrated at the seeming lack of justice in the world, here's the thing you never should forget. Here it is. God is always at work. God's always at work. You say, well, I don't see it, Ms. Ward. Well, you don't have to see it because you're accountable to God. He's not accountable to you. God's at work. And His ways, the Bible says, are beyond our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. We are not God. He is, and He's working in ways that we often cannot see, in ways that we don't always understand. And what you need to never forget is that God is being gracious and merciful to the wicked. God is being loving to the heart of those who don't know Him because he wants people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So he's gracious and merciful, even to the sinister and to the unjust, because he has other sheep that are not of this fold that he wants to bring into the fold. And so the Bible clearly says God is patient with people, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God is being very patient with the lost, Because when time comes to an end, he wants as many people in heaven as can be. That being true, God will still judge sin. That much you can remember too. Judgment is coming. Justice is coming. But justice is coming on God's terms and justice is coming on God's timetable, which is the second thing we draw from this text. First of all, God's people should avoid the presumption of challenging God's integrity. Second, At the appointed time, God will send his messengers to fully vindicate his justice. That's why we ought not question God about justice too harshly. Because God is at work. And when just the time is right, the Bible says God will take action. God identifies how he intends to do that. In the first verse of chapter 3, where we're introduced to what he apparently identifies as two messengers who are still to come two messengers that he intends to send according to his divine timetable look at the first statement of verse 1 of chapter 3 behold i send my messenger the phrase my messenger there translates one word in the hebrew anybody know what it is malachi that's what malachi's name means my messenger This messenger motif is all over the book of Malachi. His name means messenger. Now we read of two messengers that are to come. Later on, we're going to find out that God's people are all called to be messengers in one way, shape, or form. So there are two messengers that are to come. I will send my messenger, and he will what? Prepare the way before me. Now this is Yahweh God talking here. And you need to remember that in ancient times, kings would often send messengers ahead of them to prepare the way for the coming of the king. They would clear the highway, get people off the road so that the royal possession could pass by unhindered, preparing the way for the coming king. And this is a theme that's also developed, by the way, by the prophet Isaiah, more familiarly usually, language that's familiar to us from Isaiah 40. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now neither of these messengers that are mentioned by Malachi here in chapter 3 are named, we don't have their names, but with respect to this first messenger, the preparing messenger, each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, clearly identify who that messenger is. And for the scholars in the house today, shout it out. Who is that messenger that is to prepare the way of the Lord? John the Baptist. Why am I even preaching today? You all already know the answers. It's John the Baptist, right? No question about that. And we know it's John the Baptist, not only is he identified that way. By the gospel writers, he's identified that way by the Lord Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said of John the Baptist, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And that was the role of John the Baptist, to prepare the way for the coming king. And he was to do it, the Bible says, by making the crooked places straight. John came Preaching, the Bible says, right to the human heart, to warped, corrupted, sinful men and women who had crooked hearts that needed to be better prepared for the coming of the one that they had looked for and the one that they had longed for literally for centuries, the Messiah of Israel. And this is one of the reasons because he, he came to prepare the way by making the crooked places straight. It's one of the reasons that the focus of his message was what? Repentance. The first word of the gospel ministry of John was the first word of the gospel ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first word, repent, which has become something tragically of a four-letter word in many of God's churches even today. Repent. It's not a four-letter word. It's a loving word. You have to repent of your sin in order to be saved and to know God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths, what, straight. When we moved to Branson, Missouri in 1995, the road from Branson, Missouri to Springfield, Missouri, which was the big city to the north, was U.S. Highway 65. It wasn't really all that far, but it took you nearly an hour to get there. You know why? Because the road did that number right there, all around those Ozark Hills. It was a two-lane highway at the time we moved there, but just a year or two in, they began a roadworks project that was designed to widen US Highway 65 between Springfield and Branson to four lanes. We were delighted to hear that. When they got finished about three years, four years later with that project, they had taken a crooked road and made it incredibly straight. You know how they'd done it? They just blew mountains up, took the rubble, filled it into the valleys, got the mountains out of the way, got the impediments out of it. They got the impediments out of the way in order to take a crooked road and make it straight. And they cut the drive time in half. Because my wife liked to shop in Springfield, that was good news to her. Amen. It only took about half hour to get there when they got finished. That was John's role, to prepare the way for the coming king by preaching that was foundational to the gospel, repentance and faith. Turn from sin, turn to God and be saved. Preparing the people for the coming one who alone could be the cure for all that was wrong with the humanity of the world until that king finally arrived and John would point to him when he did and said, what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the first messenger, the preparing messenger. Malachi saw that and we see it in the mention of a second messenger. Again in verse one, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that's a different messenger. Any way you read it, I think, although there are some scholars that just see only one messenger in two dimensions, there's no way that can be right because he calls this guy the Lord, right? So this guy's got to be different. He's the messenger of the covenant, He's the one that the first messenger is preparing the way for, the one in whom they delight. This is a reference to whom? The Messiah. So this becomes the first messianic word that we read about in the prophet Malachi, the messenger of the covenant. Malachi identifies him as the Lord, not Yahweh. It's a different word for your Lord. Adonai is the word that's used here. I have to be careful when Robert's in the room using my Hebrew. Amen. That's the truth. But it's Adonai here, which implies a difference, not a complete difference, but an important distinction because this is not God the Father. Instead, it's God the Father forecasting the coming of whom? God the Son. It's the Messiah. It's the one that they had looked for, or as Malachi says, the one that they had longed for. And with his coming, you know what was going to come as well? perfect justice. Perfect justice. See, that's part of the reason why Malachi is saying don't rush God up. God's at work. You just can't understand it because perfect justice that you're looking for and long for, it's going to come, but it's just not going to come on your agenda. It's not going to come on your timetable. It's going to come on God's timetable. And it would begin with the first coming of the Messiah, because with the first coming, Messiah would usher in that new covenant Not the covenant of stone written on tablets of stone, the covenant of law written on tablets of stone, but a covenant of grace written on the human heart, that new covenant that the Messiah would inaugurate, a covenant based on grace is mentioned frequently also in the Old Testament. You read about it in Ezekiel, you read about it in Isaiah, you read about it probably most uh, uh, familiarly in Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 31. I'm just going to read a portion of this lengthy passage where the prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are what? Coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 33. I will put my law within them, inside of them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be... Their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't that a great statement? See, that's redemption, and that's what the messenger of the covenant accomplished in his first coming with his death, burial, and resurrection. We call it the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thing is, though, the people in Malachi's day, they weren't really interested in that Messiah coming with grace. They didn't really understand that. They thought they were already redeemed. They thought they were already just as good as God as they were, or good with God as they were ever going to get. They wanted the Lord to come how, with what judgment? That's what they were looking for. Judgment for others that weren't like them, didn't behave like them, didn't act like them. And as we learn from Malachi, truth was people of God really wasn't acting any more holy than the people around them were. So they couldn't see the forest for the trees. They, They couldn't understand that their first need was not judgment, it was mercy. They needed grace and mercy. They needed the cross because they didn't realize in their cries for judgment the full implication of what they were really asking for. And that takes us to a third and final conclusion in this passage, and that is that at the coming of the Lord, some will be purified while others will be judged. The messenger of the covenant will come doing a work of baptism. We often talk about John the Baptist being the prototypical baptizer, and really the prototypical baptizer is not so much John, it's Jesus John baptized with water, but Jesus came, the Bible says, to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Christ would come to do a work of baptism that would be bound up in these two words, refining some, judging others. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a what? Say it out loud. A refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So a significant part of the coming of the Messiah Messiah was this work of purification, of refinement. And that always begins With his people. God's going to do work in his people before he ultimately does a work in the lives of the lost. God's new covenant people, called a kingdom of priests, talks about cleansing the tribe of Levi here, and they needed to be cleansed as we've already seen. But that also carries a more prophetic. Picture because all of us in one sense fulfill a Levitical role because we're a kingdom of priests. So that's also talking about the people of God under the new covenant, the holy priesthood, the holy nation of God. God has a work to do in the light of his people because we're to function as a kingdom of priests, in holiness, in purity, in righteousness, as salt and light, agents of influence. And in order for that to happen, what does Christ continually have to do in our life? Refine us. God always and constantly is about the business of refining his people. At Hillcrest, we refer to it in terms of becoming like Christ because is that not the ultimate goal? God has predestined us who know him to be conformed to the image of his son. And you'll never accomplish that on your own. you got to have the help of the Lord to do it. And we don't like that. You know why we don't like it? Because fire burns and soap can be Harsh. And so when we're talking about being refined, because there's typically nothing pleasant about that in terms of how we define what's pleasant, we typically kind of want to push that part of Christianity to the side, because refining requires the discipline of the Lord, just like raising children requires parental discipline, and the kids don't like that either. Because the Bible says that in Hebrews 12. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Afterwards, however, in other words, when you grow up and get a little maturity on it, you'll thank God that you had parents who loved you enough to discipline you. Afterwards, no discipline seemed pleasant at the time, but painful. Afterwards, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness to those who have been trained by it and this is why being refined by the Lord is really not a curse it's a blessing it's not a cause for weeping it's a cause for joy because to get the rough wood smooth you got to put sandpaper to it somebody say amen anybody here today felt like God has been refining you in some way in the year 2020 would you say amen And see, here's the thing. You say, well, no, I don't think God's refined me. Well, just buckle it up, baby. Buckle up. (laughs) Because that either means one of two things. Either God has something planned in terms of refining you, or you don't belong to God. One of the two. See, here's what I know. Contrary to a lot of conventional wisdom today, the Bible teaches that God is more interested in your holiness than in your happiness. And we're all about happy. You know, got to be happy, 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 happy feet, happy hands, happy, happy, happy all the time. And God wants you joyful all the time, but God's more interested in your holiness than He is in your happiness. And again, the primary goal is to conform you to the image of Christ. So, what Christ's going to do? Like a metal worker, He's going to put the fire to your life. And that fire isn't going to destroy the metal, it's going to caused the alloys to rise to the top so they could be skimmed off so what's left behind is more valuable than what it was before God puts the fire to us not a forest fire forest fires burn indiscriminately not an incinerator's fire an incinerator's fire burns totally it's a refiner's fire which burns strategically. Everybody with me? And so Christ is a refining fire, makes something more worthy and more valuable. Doesn't consume it, makes it more valuable once the fires have touched it. Same is true with this illustration of the the fuller's soap. Fuller, we don't even use that word, launderer's soap. How about that? Amen. That's a better word. But it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a, a lye soap, harsh, alkaline soap. It's soap that burns because you need that kind of strong detergent to separate really dirty stuff from a garment so that what's left behind is clean and pure. And that's why for Jesus followers, again, this is not so much a word of warning. It's a word of hope because, again, we can't get to Christ's likeness on our own. But thank God we have a risen Savior who promises to do the necessary refining for us to ensure that we become like Him. And maybe that helps make sense of an unusual statement that happens, for example, like in the book of James where the Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, endurance, staying power. And let patience have its perfect work that we might become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So Christ comes in His first coming to do a work of redemption and through His Spirit for His people to do a work of refinement. But there is, however, another side to the Messiah's coming that's mentioned here. And it's a role that comes to bear not on the righteous but on the wicked. So now we're coming full circle. We're coming back to this subject of the wicked, where the people at the beginning of the passage are shaking their fist at God, wanting to know where is the justice? God now addresses that. God refines his people. But one day he will judge the wicked. That's in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Do you see that? I will be a swift witness against, and then he lists several sins, sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a reference to what the messenger of the covenants going to do, not in His first coming, but as a result of His second coming. Everybody tracking with me? The work of refinement comes as a result of the first coming of Christ and as a result of the work of the cross, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus. This work of judgment is still yet to come, and it will happen when Christ comes again In glory, when he comes again to usher in the kingdom and to administer what we often call final judgment. And it's a day every person on the planet needs to be prepared for, because, like it or not, ready or not, it's going to come. This judgment mentioned here is for the lost. He defines it those who have no fear of me. He refines the saved, but he'll eventually judge the lost. That is the promise of God. There will be final and equitable justice that will come. But God's people, for us, our role is not to question how God brings it or when God brings it. Our role is to recognize as believers, we, are y'all still with me? Say amen. As believers, we have a role to play in making sure people are ready for the coming of the Lord. In one sense, we all function like John the Baptist. Now, we're not John the Baptist. John the Baptist came as the divinely appointed forerunner to prepare the way for the first coming of Christ. But God's people, this holy nation, this kingdom of priests, these ambassadors of Christ are saved and left behind for a royal purpose, to prepare the way of the Lord to prepare the whole world that Jesus is coming again and that the most important thing they can be is ready. We are ambassadors for Christ, charged with the message, be ye reconciled to God. We're called to be about the business of the Great Commission, going and making disciples of all nations, preaching the gospel, testifying to the gospel, encouraging people that they may understand judgment is coming. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. You must be born again. That's why we're here. You remember that psalmist in Psalm 73 a few minutes ago that we looked at who was tripping all over his perceived injustice of God? That same psalmist at the end of Psalm 73 came to a better understanding. Verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Now remember just a few verses earlier, he was shaking his fist at God. He was asking the same question as the people in Malachi's day. Where is the God of justice? Why do the wicked prosper? But the Spirit of God spoke to his heart. Behold, Those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge. Watch this. That I may what? That I may tell of all your works. You see that? Prepare ye, y'all. Prepare the way of the Lord. Where is the God of justice? I'll tell you where he is. I'll tell you right where he is. He's on his throne. Amen. That's where he is. He's on his throne, and he's accomplishing his work. I'll tell you another thing, the God of justice. He's refining his people, you and me. And when the time is right, he'll come again. He's promised to do that. I will come again. And he'll execute perfect justice to all who fail to fear the Lord and to all who fail to honor his great name. Until that day, ours is not to question God. Ours is to trust God and realize our most important calling outside of glorifying God with our lives is the calling to prepare others for the coming Of Christ. May we do it in ways that are pleasing to our sovereign God. This is His Word. Let all who agree say,